0: All right, October 14th, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. It's a great day because one of our congregants found his pants. <laughs> uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we, uh, we love you and, and all things possible, all things good happening through you. And we just pray that we will be cognizant of your hand in our lives and we'll be grateful. And... Uh, Look to you with humility and contrition and love for your benevolence and the the things you do on our behalf. Uh, Send your spirit to be with us to help us understand what Paul is saying in these passages and how they apply to us today, and uh, help those who are having difficulty in life that they'll join us sometime and be able to understand your word. We pray that we will also walk in love that we've been talking about a lot lately, and that's the goal, so help us to do that through the hearing of your word, building our faith, Jesus name amen
1: for the love was given in heaven lay
2: up for your
0: Okay, left off last week covering verse uh, 4 of chapter four, 1 through 4. Paul wrote, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, we have received mercy. We faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And we covered that verse by verse last week. And now we add, he adds additional clarification at verse 5 through 7, our text for today. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord... And ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So back to verse 5, Paul now adds, We... For we preach not ourselves. Of course, he's uh, speaking of the apostles. We don't preach of ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. So he says, we don't preach ourselves, and we are your servants for Jesus' sake. I like the way the RSV, that's uh, uh, that's where we get all the other Westcott and Hort, uh, nestle, Arle, uh, nestle Allen transcripts. There's two sources of Scripture. One's from Antioch, one's from Alexandria. And the Antiochian uh, verses give us the King James and all those Bibles that come from that. And the uh, Alexandrian give us the ESV and the NIV and all the modern versions. Well, I like the way the modern version says, verse 5, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So Paul seems to be giving the reason for what he has said in the previous parts of the epistle, respecting his conduct in ministry. And uh, he reiterates that he has been open. He has been pure. He has been free from dishonest arts, from tricks, not corrupting the word of God, or resorting to anything that could question his apostolic uh, integrity. Um, instead of preaching for his own benefit and ego, uh, he has, says here that he uh, instead has preached Jesus Christ as Lord. Uh, and uh, he made him known as Lord, as Savior. He made him known as Redeemer. So he is trying to establish the fact that he hasn't been in this game for anything other than to preach Christ as Lord. And I get accused of a lot of things, uh, but I want to make it part of the public record that I do not preach for my gain. I do not preach what I preach so that I can be seen as something big or to build a, a populace or an audience. I preach honestly what I think is true. Now, people disagree with it, But it is not for anything other than what I... And so I can concur publicly that this is what drives me. It's what moves me. I'm not perfect at it, and I make mistakes. I I don't think Paul did. I do, but still, I can stand by the fact that I'm motivated by the same things. So, and that being said, we got to touch on something here because Paul brings it to our attention. He says that he has made him known as Savior, as Lord, as Redeemer, which is why he says he has preached. Sorry, but we have to note that Paul does not say he preached Jesus as God. Paul does not say he preached Jesus as God. Instead, he chooses to say we preach Jesus as Lord. I always wonder why it was so difficult for the apostles To not throw in, he is God. He's the second member of the Holy Trinity. Why Paul and Peter and James and John and those who wrote, why they don't make that plain statement when they're very plain in saying that Jesus is Lord and Savior. In every introduction, he is Lord. In every introduction, God the Father is God. Jesus is Lord. So why this, this thing? Paul's point in doing this was to show his intentions in preaching, was to promote Jesus as Lord and his not, his own, not his own agenda. But he does not say that in promoting Jesus as Lord that he is also God. Now, I, have you ever wondered why, if when you examine Scripture, it's not clearly stated by the apostles? We have, of course, Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. That's a reference, and we have some other inferences that are in there. But uh, it's just not apostolically given. When Peter had a chance to describe Jesus in any way he wanted to Cornelius in Acts chapter uh, 10, he says, Jesus of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. That's how he introduces him. This is not to say, hear me clearly, that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was not God in the flesh. I am not saying that. Uh, Or the Word of God made flesh. I believe that is exactly who Jesus was. He was the Word of God made flesh, born of a woman, born under the law, a Nazarene. What part of him was God? The very Word, his Logos. That was God. To me, it's as simple as that because that's what the scripture says. And the word was made flesh, and the word was God, uh, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That was what it was, right? But in places like this, it seems the apostolic record makes the main focus on Jesus always as Lord, always as Savior. No apostle gives us Jesus as God, they don't say it directly outright like we would like them to. So we have to wonder if this is because Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, born under the law, had to overcome his humanity in order to reach deification in the flesh. That the flesh had to reach deification. What was in him certainly didn't, but the flesh had to be deified. That's not a new concept. That's That's been talked about by the Catholics and the people way back before I was ever born. So here in verses 5 through 7, Paul actually takes the time to distinguish between preaching Jesus as Lord and God himself. Listen to what he says. I'm going to read the words. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God... Who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have treasure in earthen vessels but that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He distinguishes even in these passages between the Lord Jesus Christ and God and doesn't seem to bring them into this idea of uh, oneness. So I'm reiterating the biblical fact that when it comes to Jesus and God in the New Testament, Jesus is constantly described as a man, son of man, son of God, um, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord, the Redeemer, the Savior, and the references to God in him do not support the Trinitarian uh, idea unless a person has been taught this is how to see it, and they've been taught that way, and when they read it, they say, that's what that means. I've always maintained that if you give somebody who hasn't been taught how to see the Trinity in the New Testament, they would never see it. They would simply say, there's God the Father, and there is Jesus Christ, his only human son. And I maintain that because if you read it, that's what it says. You have to bring to the table this learning that we've been given. Uh, but... Um, they support clearly that Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of the true and living God, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Word made flesh as a, as a means to redeem the world. So these passages support this overall picture, in my opinion. I don't want to make it anything more than what it says. That's, that's, that's something that I have to honestly do so I can stand before God and He might say, McCraney, you are such an idiot that I was telling you I'm a Trinity and you consistently kept teaching these things that made it make it sound like it's not and I'll say, "Lord, I taught what the word said by the spirit the best of my ability." That's what it says here, right? So, and this is what we're going to constantly affirm until I've shown otherwise. So, after admitting that his business was to preach Jesus Christ as Lord, Uh, which is ruler over all things, and not to promote himself. Paul adds that in doing so, that the apostles make themselves your servants, the people who are at Corinth. We make ourselves your servants. And adds at verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, has shined in our hearts. God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to give the knowledge of the glory of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so paul seems to take the time to explain why he and his fellow apostles didn't promote themselves But instead, Jesus Christ, they promote, saying, for God has commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Most translations admit that Paul is quoting from Genesis here. They say Genesis, they use it as a cross-reference, Genesis 1-3. But it's not a quote. You know, just know that right now. That's not a quote from Genesis. That's Uh, Paul describing what Genesis 1-3 says, but it's not a quote from Genesis 1-3. And that happens a lot in Scripture. The apostles will take the liberty to quote from the Old Testament, but it's not verbatim. They They will use the Scripture in another sort of fashion and sort of reference that passage, but they don't use a direct quote either from the Hebrew or from the Septuagint Greek. They simply will summarize the the meaning of the the words that are said in the Old Testament. And it's a fascinating study. We've come across that several times in our study of Acts, that where uh, Paul or Peter are quoting the Old Testament, they quote something and you say, okay, where is that? And you can't find it. And then you look to the scholars and the scholars say, this is a paraphrase of the meaning. Paul or Peter have used this passage in the Old Testament to their benefit in a point they're making, but it's not necessarily contextual, and it's certainly not verbatim. That's a fascinating, that's what Bart Ehrman, uh, the great critic of Christianity, uh, really criticizes uh, Christianity for, in that we have created a Jesus, because even the apostles were just taking the uh, Old Testament passages and using them to their convenience to describe things. Um, I differ with him, of course, but um, he has a point to some extent. So, Paul says that instead of preaching for themselves, they preach Jesus Christ for God has commanded the light to shine out of the darkness. Has, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, that is the paraphrase of Genesis 1-3, has shined in our hearts, he says. God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Most translations admit that Paul is simply... Uh, quoting this but they really mean is that they that he is paraphrasing it Um, why did god shine and appears to be the same light into the heart of the apostles that he shined into the darkness at genesis why is god shining this light into paul he tells us so that they can give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ Now, what that means in the face of Jesus Christ, it doesn't necessarily mean right in Jesus' face. Jesus is gone now, when Paul writes. So he means in the person of Jesus Christ, in that very person, we can, because God has shined in our hearts, give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Christ. That's what we're doing, and that's what he seems to be saying. First of all, God has shined light into their hearts. He's given them, that's personal revelation, directly from God, that the light was shined into their personal hearts. And he did this in order to give them, for them to then give the light um, of the knowledge of the glory of God to others. That is in the person or the face, it says. That's a Hebrew colloquialism. uh, That is to give, they can see God in the person of Christ. And that was the apostles' job. The doctrines that they were preaching were not derived from men. God shined the light into the apostles' hearts. They were not uh, um, taught in any form to Paul. Paul went out to the Sinai uh, desert, and he learned from Jesus. Three years was tutored by him what Jesus wanted him to know going out to the uh, Gentiles and to preach. And, uh, and remember, we had a guest on Heart of the Matter last week, and she dro- drove all the way from Florida to speak with me about things, d- driven, she says, by the Spirit. And we sat down, and I learned a lot from her. She says the, the original t- uh, apostles that Jesus called and told them to go out into all the Gehei in the uh, Greek didn't do it. That they, All they did was they went back to Jerusalem and they stayed around that area. They didn't do what God told them to do. So God called Paul to go out, and that's why most of the New Testament are, there, as Paul's, are Paul's writings. I don't know if that's true, but that's an interesting uh, subtext. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit and then go out into all the world and do what I'm telling you to do, and that we don't have really that much evidence of that happening. That's just a conjecture, but it was interesting. So anyway, no traditions of man moved, Paul. He says God has shined his light into our heart. Are we allowed to receive the same thing uh, in our Christian lives? I would suggest it's nothing but. We had the discussion that in uh, Jeremiah 31... Uh, where God says, In that day I will write my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And no man will tell his neighbor, Know the Lord, know the Lord, for all men shall know me. And he repeats it in Hebrews 8, and he repeats it in Hebrews 10. And he calls it the New Testament. That's what the New Testament is, when God writes on our heart, not a book. We covered all that with. And, and so definitely God has written on those who are his, his laws. And so when Paul says that God has shined into his heart, that is not... Uh, anathema. That is exactly what God did. That's why he is an apostle, and uh, God does the same thing in this day and age. So we talked about that concept a few weeks ago, because God is love, and, and all the law hangs upon that love. The law and the prophets hangs upon the two great commandments, love God and love neighbor as itself. It seems to me that what he's shining in our heart is that agape love, which we have been talking about quite a bit in milk, and, that, and all those facets of agape love what it is not especially and then what it looks like according to what Paul says so Paul admits that as an apostle this was directly imputed to them and that light right into their hearts and as a result they were able to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God which abides and abided in the face or the person of Jesus Christ according to scholars like Tyndale and Bloomfield and a guy who's always quoted Doddridge. I've never looked up to see who Doddridge is, but he's quoted quite a bit. Um, we can understand this passage in two ways. First, we can say that the apostles were given, they were able to give knowledge or insight into what the glory of God is, or from the way this is written in the Greek, we could say that they were given light or knowledge about the glorious God. So they could do either give information because of what God has given them about the glory that God is or the glorious God, all right? Now, it seems pretty easy to say he's giving light about the glorious God, but in the context of what we've studied back in the chapter before, where he talks about Moses having to veil his face so that they couldn't see the end of the law in the shiningness of Moses' face, I tend to think that what it says here is that the apostles were able to give knowledge of the glory of God. Not of the glorious God, but of the glory of God actually to people that existed in the person of Christ Jesus. That would be my take on it, for whatever it's worth. I side with that for three reasons. Back in chapter 3, as I said, Paul spoke of Moses hiding his face to conceal the glory of God, which, if it had been revealed to the children of Israel, If Moses had said, look into my face, they would have seen the end of the law, is what it said a couple weeks ago. And at the end of the law, the children of Israel would have advanced too quickly. They would have known much more than God wanted to give them. So Moses veiled his face, so they couldn't see that in his uh, countenance. The other reason I think it's talking about the apostles revealing the glory of God is because Paul mentions the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. This... uh, This seems to speak directly to glory and not to the glorious God. And then finally, Paul seems to be saying that his object as an apostle has been that this glory shined into his heart was to share Jesus with them who was the one who reflected the glory of God to all people. Okay, There's a lot of uh, stuff going on around me. Are we still on? Did the camera become unplugged? We're on audio. So if you've gone momentarily blind, you're having a Pauline experience on the road to Damascus, (laughs) just hang in there. You'll get your vision soon. So um, in the face of Christ, in the person of Christ, um, multifaceted reference. First, where the children of Israel couldn't look into Moses' face, in that day, There were people walking around at that time who had looked into the person of Christ directly. Paul was one of them, even though it was post death and resurrection. There were people who looked to Christ and could see. There was no obstacle to them seeing God in the person of Christ. We remember that Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. That's what he said, right? I take that as absolutely true, but... um, I do not think it was a play on words. I think it was a reality. Jesus was the Father with us. I don't mean that in a uh, modalistic sense of Sibelianist modalism, where the Father becomes the Son and the Son becomes the Holy Spirit. That's modalistic Sabellianism. I just mean that he was God with us. To see him was to see the Father, who is God. That's how I see it. Uh, but uh, to see him, and I think this was meant to see him for who he really was, was to see the Father. Same light, same glory, same love, same words, same everything the Father was made in flesh. So I don't think the scene in the bleppo sense of actually seeing was they were seeing God as Jesus, in Jesus' face, meaning his nose and his ears and his eyes. I don't think Jesus was saying, when you see me, the bearded, long-haired Jew, which he may or may not have been, you're seeing a bearded, long-haired father. I don't think that was uh, physical at all. I reject that idea to look upon his physical features was to see the father. And so therefore, we're only left with talking about his spiritual characteristics in person. The word rendered face here can mean face, but it can also mean just the person. And so, in the end, I'm still of the opinion that Paul is speaking of the divine perfections that shone out and through the Redeemer. There's some passages that support that. Remember Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says that the glory of the divine nature was in about the of characteristics and his person in and through Christ Jesus the divine glory of the attributes were made known meaning love itself and what love looked like justice judgment mercy goodness long-suffering peace in the person of Christ that is how you see the father it's really important that as believers we don't skip over the fact that that what Jesus did would have been what His Father would have done. No difference had He been walking about in flesh, uh, as the divine moral character of the Father would be known that way. And from this we make no leap, we make no leap whatsoever to say that uh, with God in Him, Jesus of Nazareth was God with us. There's no leap at all to say that. And in this, we can say that Jesus of Nazareth was God incarnate. I think that's proper. And uh, in heaven, it's like the God of heaven was made known on earth, and on earth, uh, God in flesh was made known in heaven. Sort of that syllogism. So when Jesus of Nazareth spoke of eternality in his person, there's no conflict there, even though he was born of a woman. There's no conflict when he spoke of eternality. And when he spoke of forgiving sins, remember the Jews said, who can forgive sins but God? There's no conflict there at all. He could forgive sins. And when it says, uh, scripture says that he created all things. Jesus created all things. It references that several times in scripture. There's no conflict there. How were all things made? God spoke it. What was God? How did God speak it? With his words. What was made flesh? The word of God. No conflict there. Uh, But we would be out of harmony with Scripture if we push something the apostles did not. They did not push Jesus was God. They did not push that. They pushed that he was Lord and Savior for a reason because of the man, the human part of him. And that's what they emphasized. And so that's what we emphasize. And we would go down that rabbit trail of trying to balance out these Trinitarian ideas. We say the apostles' way of doing it was not right. We say we have a better way of explaining it, and we then interpret what traditions have done. But just remember this, Jesus of Nazareth learned obedience through the things he suffered. Quote, Jesus of Nazareth was born of a woman. Jesus of Nazareth was tempted with sin. God cannot be tempted. Jesus of Nazareth was not all-knowing. He did not know everything. And Jesus of Nazareth died. So when you get zealous people who just speak of things that even the apostles didn't speak of, I just caution you. To be careful of taking traditions of men and their teachings and using it as your language just because it's the thing that was established for us by councils, you know, some uh, 1,800 years ago. Just remember, that's not to say he wasn't God with us, but that was not, that's not the focus of Jesus of Nazareth. It's that one like us, full of God, was willing and able to go through this life submit himself to all things that his father gave him, and then overcame sin and death. That's the glorious message, right? So what the example given by many theologians has been that the wax bears the exact image of the seal. And that's referencing the signet ring where you get that wax and you take the signet ring and you plunge it into that wax on the letter and you take it out and they say, that is what we're talking about here. But, uh, you know... I have to suggest that there's a difference between the seal and the wax. There's a great difference. And uh, it's kind of good in its analogy because the wax does break down like Jesus died. And the wax isn't something that will be eternal uh, like Jesus of Nazareth is eternal in his godliness, but the body, you know, only in resurrected form would it be eternal. So you, so I think the seal is the thing that is the permanent thing with the wax being a replication of the seal. And in that way, it better explains Jesus and God. Okay, at verse 7, Paul says, but we have, talking about the apostles, this treasure in earthen vessels. He's bringing it back to the humility of himself as an apostle. We have this treasure that God has given us shined into our hearts in earthen vessels, but the, the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, as a means for God to retain that glory that he is, he has imparted this light into vessels that are earthen. We are uh, vessels that are earthen. And uh, he humbly admits that he is therefore feeble and he is capable of breaking down and decaying and dying. And uh, so while the, what they've received is really important, um, we are not going to be around here forever to do what we do. It's a very humble statement that he makes. The Greek term for earth and vessel here refers in antiquity to um, fired clay and shells and or shells. And if you think about it, when you take fired clay or if you take shells and you drop them from here to the to the floor i'm standing on they're going to break right and so it's a reference to show that he's admitting that even though i possess this gifted treasure i am going to go away and he went away shortly not not very long hereafter writing this passed on to the other side so he's admitting that though he's been gifted, he will break. And he summarizes his observations of frailty by saying that, you guys got to be quiet, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That the excellency of power may be of God and not of us. So again, he says, look, at we're apostles. We've received this, but don't look to us as being power. We are in earthen vessels. Let, let all that glory be of God. Okay. So to me, Paul is saying that the, that power in them, that great power manifested, including healing the sick, raising the dead, uh, casting out devils, bold in persecution, being beaten, being cast out, traveling over land and sea, dangers, suffering, were manifestly beyond human strength, and therefore were proof that God was in them and with them in their earthen vessels. And at this point, Paul enters into some personal revelations about what the apostles have endured in the name of Christ and by the power of God. From verse eight to the end of the chapter, um, this is the subject that Paul addresses. And so I want to read those with you. Now, this second uh, Corinthians has been noted, as I've said before, as the chapter that Paul reveals more about himself than any other book than any other epistle in Scripture. Right. And so he says, beginning at verse eight, now speaking about himself, we, the apostles, are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. And that's why I can say all through this, he's talking about apostles when he says we, we, we. He's talking about apostles when he talks about predestination in Ephesians 1, got to tell you. Because afterwards, he goes to you. He goes to you. We, we, we have this, but you, and that's what he does here, too, from 8. And then in verse 12, he says you. And he says, We have the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believe, and therefore I have spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that that which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. He, he differentiates between the apostles and the believers. For all things now are for your sakes, talking about the believers, that the abundant grace might be through the thanksgiving of many redound unto the glory of God, for which cause we faint not, but, through our, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. We're going to talk about that verse a lot when we get to it. We won't get to it today. For our light affliction which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Okay? So let's go back to verse 8 and we're going to work forward till we get to, I can't remember, I think uh, verse 12. We're troubled on every side, not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Without question, the we here refers to the apostles. And this is proven by the you and 12 as I mentioned. Paul opens up here and he begins to describe what they suffered. They, he's been criticized by the Corinthians and now he's telling them look at this is what we've suffered in these earthen vessels. And you fellow my fellow laborers suffered them with me. It could be that Paul was trying to reestablish some Uh, Integrity in the heart of the believers at Corinth. He was trying to say, look at these things have happened to us because we have been trying to show the glory of God through the person of Jesus Christ to you. Let's do the laundry list. I've done it on the board. He says we are troubled on every side. And this is kind of the cool thing about it and obvious. He says we're troubled, but then he says, but we are not distressed. Ever been in that place where you are absolutely troubled by something, but you're not distressed? We'll hear what he means by that in a second. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. Big difference between the two. We're persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are cast down, the fourth one, but we are not apulamahi. We are not destroyed, right? Uh, We are also bearing about the body of the dying Lord that the life of Jesus. Always bearing about The body of the dying Lord, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we live, are for we which live are always delivered unto death. Always delivered unto death, that the life of Jesus, he says again, might be made manifest in our flesh. So then worketh death in us. Oh wait, always delivered. Always delivered. Always dying. Always bearing. About the dying, bearing, delivered, bearing and delivered. And then that, okay, so then death worketh in us, but to them, life in you. Okay, so let's go back and just look at the Greek for those words, and we'll get a better insight perhaps of what he's saying. He starts with, we are troubled on every side. The word here appears to have reference to wrestling games in the Olympics and it is they would be very familiar with that at Corinth and it means to press together. If you've ever seen a wrestling match, if it's uh, the kind where you start off, you don't you aren't apart very much in wrestling unless it's a stand up kind. And uh, so that's what he's referring to. You're being pressed together. So troubled, you could put wrestling there. We are wrestling constantly uh, with evil and affliction. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 5, When we were come to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. It was this wrestling match that they had to deal with on every side. Uh, in every way, but he says, yet we were not distressed. Now, what's also interesting, Tyndale translates distressed here as we were not without our shift. That's how Tyndale puts it, which means better, we were not pushed into a crowded corner. I don't know how that all came about, but that's what these guys say. He says, we were uh, uh, on every side we were wrestled and pressed in close, but uh, We were not without our shift. We are pressed in on every side, but we're not crowded into a narrow place to the point that we can't turn around. And I wondered about that uh, translation that Tyndale gave. So I looked at the Syriac translation, and this is how the Syriac puts it. In all things we are pressed, but we are not suffocated. I like that. And that that fits right in with what the Greek is saying. You're pushed in by having to wrestle these demons, but you're still breathing, baby. You still have that life in you, all right? Number two, we are perplexed, aporeo in the King James Greek, and, which means we have no way out. We doubt we can make our way out at all. We are perplexed as to how we're going to ever be saved from this situation. Uh, but we are not in despair, which Tyndale says means we're not without help. We don't know what's going to happen with us. But we know that we are not without help. We're not in despair over who's going to help us in this situation. So far, Paul is describing a lot of what Christians face in this world as believers. That we can be troubled and we can be pushed into a. but we're not in a corner where we don't see it. We can be perplexed and wondering, is there any way out of this? But we're not in despair. We know that there is something. That's the paradox of being a Christian. That it's not all flowers and roses. It is the idea that in the midst of the struggle, there is some hope and there is some clarity on the fact that we are being led somehow in a situation that seems like it's just so dire. Verse, uh, point number three, persecuted, but not forsaken. Uh, The book of Acts clearly talks about the apostles and the persecution that they faced almost wherever they went. And yet the book of Acts also supports Paul's follow-up, he says, um, persecuted but not forsaken. It's similar to uh, not without help, um, not deserted, not abandoned by God. And it's one of the great mysteries. Um, I just, uh, I mentioned this in Milk this morning. I sat for two hours, Mary and I sat in a studio with four, three hardened atheists uh, last week in a two-hour radio podcast, and I'm facing all of their stuff coming at me about, about stuff. And, and, uh, it's one of the great mysteries as to why God allows his children to suffer and to suffer, uh, these things that Paul, an apostle, an earthen vessel that has received the light in his heart is allowed to suffer in this world. And, the, you know, the atheists and, and sometimes people like them, these guys are really nice, but they have this idea that if there's a God, we should all just be eating uh, chocolate and never gaining weight. That, you know, we, we live in a world and, and nothing bad will ever happen to any of his creations, let alone his children. And, uh, and, and that just doesn't seem to be the case when we consider his need to be a good God and not insert himself in things that uh, would remove free will and whatever else is going on, all things considered. The big picture God has is not the small picture we have. So I've always wondered, though, the persecution. I mean, John the Baptist lives his entire life eating grasshoppers and wearing, wearing ha- camel's hair coat. He prophesies of the Messiah. He gets out there and baptizes. He's put in prison and he loses his head. The guy has had not much of a real good life. Why? Well, there's something in it, you know, and that's for people of faith to discover. But all I can say is here, Paul says, look, we were persecuted to no end, but we were not forsaken. And that's the question you have to ask yourself in your trials and troubles. Do you sense the persecution, but can you also sense the fact that you're not alone? And that's what will carry you through to continuing in the walk. So, I, you know, we're just funny. We're always willing to readily give God the credit for saving people from accidents and from death and uh, from injury and, and, and merit. We love talking about those, but we very rarely uh, rejoice in his wisdom in uh, allowing bad things to happen when we're going through them. Later on, we can look back maybe and say, he had wisdom in this. And maybe in the eternal spectrum, we know we will. But it's, it's just not as readily put out there when we're in the midst of it. And Paul, he's still in the midst of it, is saying these things. Of course, the apostles, no exception. And I can't tell you how important the role of these apostles were in establishing the salvation of the world. I mean, they were so important. Uh, in the role they played in the kingdom then and in the kingdom now. so they. But I want to tell you that they were a one-time shot. Let me go backward. Jesus was a one-time shot on this earth. That was it. 33 years, whatever, gone. Still with us? Yes, absolutely, by the Spirit. But a one-time shot. Those apostles, a one-time shot. That was to establish that bride, that bride, a one-time shot. 144,000 Jews being taken up and protected from Nero, a one-time shot. And, and, uh, and so um, that age was a one-time shot in the apostolic record. We, we read of that age with that bride and those apostles and that Lord taking care and establishing his kingdom on earth. So when we read of it, that's the one-time shot being set up, and we rejoice that we're benefactors of living in the product of those, those one-time events that we're able to read about. Of course, men want to take it and bring the apostles back and up on North Temple right now and say, we're the bride, and he's going to come and take us, and all that other stuff. We, But, uh, you know, uh, this, to me, the historical record, the apostolic record says... This is what God did in the meridian of time, at the fullness of that age, and he settled it all for us. It is finished. Along the way, while being persecuted, God promised and proved that he would never leave or forsake them. God always interposed on their behalf until their work was done, and then it was, it was over. Number four, Paul says we were cast down. You know what that means. Thrown down by our enemies, and that is another allusion to the uh, Greek Uh, Games where a wrestler gets somebody on their back and, you know, slams them down, if that's what you do in wrestling. But you're put down, you're pinned, cast down, but not a pulamahi, which we've talked about at length here, which it says destroyed in the King James. Uh, Looking out over our audience here, does anybody have a non-King James where it has a word other than destroyed? We were cast down, but we were not. Um, It's uh, it's, uh, verse... uh, Nine. We were cast down but not Say it Mary. <laughs> the uh, we get knocked down but we get up again and keep going. Okay. Uh so in, in the Greek it's we were cast down we but not destroyed. What? We are hunted down but God never abandons us. We get knocked down but we get up again and keep going. What a horrible translation. Struck down, okay, struck down's good. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else have anything different? Struck down was used and we get up and keep running was used. I tell my wife, stop reading that Timothy Leary Bible. He doesn't listen to me. Uh, anyway, Apulamahi, it says destroyed. We are We are cast down but not destroyed. That word simply means to suffer loss. And it would be a loss to be struck down. We are not suffering, uh, perishing, loss permanent that goes away uh, forever. It's not annihilation. Then at verse 10 Paul says again speaking of himself as an apostle and others, we are always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Now he gives the next passage is very similar to that. What does that mean? We're always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Now, this expression is designed to show the great perils, of course, that Paul was exposed to and the sufferings that went with representing Christ. But I think It's a parallel to Christ in the apostles in terms of suffering and not so much in terms of literalness. And when he says, we're bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Um, In Galatians 6, 17, however, Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. That word marks is stigmata in the Greek. So Paul says, I bear in my body the stigmata, the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, what were those marks? Well, we know that they were pierced hands, pierced feet, sword and side, right? And so for that, we have a whole mythology or, uh, where people will talk about in our movies and stuff where people suddenly appear with the marks of Jesus and and one of the supports they'll use is that Paul, he had the stigmata of Jesus and that's the far extreme interpretation of that. Okay. You can take it literally. If you're going to take it literally and you'll be a biblical literalist, then Paul bore the stigmata, the actual marks of Christ in his body. And maybe that's true. Um, The word translated stigmata means marks or brands that are pricked or burnt upon the body. And slaves were branded according to their master, just like we do with cattle today, and to prevent their escape. And it also showed the gods that they were devoted to. So uh, Herodotus says that in the temple of Hercules in Egypt, that if any slave was to take refuge there, they had brands put upon them on their body To show that they were part of that temple and no one could hurt them once they were branded with that mark. And so some think that Paul is referencing or he's given an allusion to that custom. That he had the name of the redeemer impressed upon his body somehow. And that showed that he was truly devoted to the cause. Uh, It's possible. It seems more probable that Paul is probably uh, was beaten with stripes, had rocks thrown at him. He had scars. And those were the marks that he's talking about that showed that he bore uh, Christ in his body. That it wasn't the actual stigmata of the marks, but it was stripe marks and beating marks that said, hey, that guy suffered for Christ, right? Just like one of our POWs goes to prison of war and comes out with all sorts of scars on them. It shows that they were uh, fighting for our country because the people who put the marks upon them were against us. Okay, the marks Christianity today, though, that the Christians that we bear, do we bear the marks of Christ? Well, if you're a literalist and you're an extremist, you're going to put the stigmata in your flesh to show. And um, but if you are just spiritual and you're taking it spiritually, then those marks might be people will know that you're a follower of Christ. You bear Christ in your body because you've subdued your animal instincts. You're not known as the, the bar-slamming, screaming, drunken guy anymore. You're not you know, out there just being completely wild. You have subdued the marks of Christ in your body in the way that you live and other limitations that the Lord, you're kind and you're merciful, things like that. So Paul says that they're always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life, we have a contradistinction there, he says we're bearing about the dying of Jesus and these scars that we have from being persecuted, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. In other words, he seems to be saying that by and through the mortifications of the flesh and or the actual things that have happened to them in the flesh, in their physical bodies, Perhaps these, these wounds, the very life of Jesus was constantly living in them. When you looked at Paul and his shirt was off, you could see the scars, and it was constantly showing the life of Christ that was in them, right? That's what caused them to bear those. And as they bore them about the body, the dying Lord, it seems to be a strong connection when Paul says that we die daily with Christ. He admonishes us to do that. And in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to read that he says, and we suffer deaths often, meaning that we are dying constantly with Christ in the things that we do. Someone hits me in the side of the head with a peach. Why a peach? I don't know. And you die to that. That is bearing in you the living Christ. That is how it works. You get it? The question is, do we, borrowing from these same principles, experience this? And if the answer is yes then what is it that people see in you that reflects the living Christ? That's the principle here. What is reflected in you that evidences the living Christ, not the dead one, okay? At verse 11, there's another similar passage, but there's a few differences. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh, so in the first one, in 10, he says, For we live our, excuse me, got to check this, uh, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be manifest in the flesh. In verse 11, for we are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. So these aren't just marks. This is just being delivered to death itself, that the life also of Jesus might be, be, might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So there's some subtle differences in that, and I don't really know why. I thought about it, but nothing's really come. The psalmist says in 44.22, Yea, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted sheep as for the slaughter. Then in Romans 8.35, Paul famously says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril of sword... As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's the way he describes Christian in that day and age. And so when he says here, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh, we again know what he's speaking of because of what he said in verse 10, which is very similar. Uh, But the verse here is a little bit different because in this one he's talking about not just stigmata, not scars of persecution, but actual death. And one refers to the process of dying when you're injured and wounded. The other one refers to death itself once it's been accomplished. So it seems Paul is not only admitting that they have suffered affliction and infliction as apostles but they constantly face death, and they have experienced it. James has already been put to death here, and probably a number of other apostles have been put to death by this point in time. So that's why he's saying we are bearing the death of Christ, actual death, right, uh, for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus might be manifest manifest in our mortal flesh. In Our our mortal flesh is in the ground dead. We have been killed, and in that Jesus, the life of Jesus is again uh Illuminated. Uh, he wraps it all up with a simple summary for the believers at Corinth saying, so then, death works in us, but life in you, recipients of this letter. He's made it clear that the apostles, we are, death is constantly at work in us. It's at work in us in our reputation with others. It's at work in us with the forces that want us dead. It's at work in us whenever a stone hits us in the head or stripes are delivered or we're put in prisons. It, we are in death. And we are in this death, he says, but life is in you, meaning through Christ Jesus. And um, the result, he tells them, the believers, at, uh, the believers at Corinth, is that they should now reap the advantages of the apostles' exposure to these trials and their sufferings that they endured on their behalf for the gospel to be given to them. Questions, comments, insights. Thank you, ladies, for letting me correct you about being quiet. Any? And from our morning vanna. Yes,
3: there's a lot of banners out there. Anyway, Sean, <laughs> um, <I laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. I like that. We are, if you can move to your left for a second, I can read that. We are distressed, we are not despaired, we are not forsaken. Apollo May, hey, life of Jesus and so forth. That's a song, Mary said that's a song. I'm not going to sing it, but Chris, most Christians might know the song, too. Uh, and I really like that song because it means a lot to me because in my life I have I have a testimony, if I could throw that word out there in this state, testimony, that God is with me. I know that every knee shall bow, I know every tongue shall confess, I've met the Lord Jesus Christ. Not not like I'm talking to you right now I, don't, I haven't seen him in his physical form but I felt his little presence with me in my life Praise so God. I've met him so I know that every knee will bow every tongue will confess I know that he uh, saves us from those things uh, throughout my childhood I've had a testimony of that even Doesn't. though I was still Mormon God's no respect of persons now I'm not Mormon still God's love is with me Doesn't always bless you. thanks so, you, brother amen Jesus thank
0: you nice move wendy going to dan the man
1: i'm dan uh thanks sean it was good uh you, you were talking about uh the stigmata thing well i grew up this is just like a comment thing but i grew up catholic and there were some real people i mean like guys that had it in our lifetime wow right i don't know if you knew this but like Padre Pio was one of the oh. more famous ones, but, and um, so we were just taught as
0: kids that, that's, they're bearing the marks the mark. of Christ, just like that, huh? you know. Of course, I think my mom would say, quit picking at that thing and it might heal,
1: but I don't know. But anyway, uh, but no, they, they really, there's some real belief and you know, I don't know what to think about that, but
0: just
3: just a bit of information.
0: Very intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. You got to go back and do your dance the other way again.
3: (laughs) So, bearing the marks of Christ in our flesh, I think that could also mean. um, Now, I want to articulate this. I think that could mean how we treat others, you see? So. We see a man stranded on the side of the street. He's hurt in his flesh. So we say it's uh, it's hard. I don't want to uh, uh, change his tire. I don't want to help him with his car problems because it's going to hurt my flesh. But I'm going to bear the marks of Christ. I'm going to get Ooh. down and dirty, and I'm going to help this guy like no that. matter what he's going through in his life. I like. I'm going to get dirty with him, right?
0: Sure. Love That's it.
3: a gospel love, as you talked about this morning, and. Another thing, before I release it to Vanna, is you have a cross tattoo? I have a cross tattoo. That could be a mark a mark of Christ. I'm not saying that's what the Scripture is talking about in the original language, but that's my mark of Christ. It's my tattoos
0: All right. that there I you have you of have, Jesus.
3: Brother. So and anyways, just my thoughts.
0: Thank you very much. Is that it? All right, let's pray. Lord, whatever the definition in uh, the Marks, you know, we pray that we will evidence Christ. And when people look at us, they will see uh, him uh, living. That's the thing, the living Christ in us. And uh, we just pray that we can exit here and just keep maybe that concept at the forefront of our minds this week as we uh, engage with others. We pray for the people on our list, Gracie, continued comfort and peace. For herself and her family, for Robert, continued healing from cancer. Tammy, uh, comfort from back pain. Phyllis, recovery from pancreatic cancer surgery. Eric, his need to lose 90 pounds and to get a job. We pray that he will be able to uh, achieve those things uh, and that you'll empower him and empower everybody else who's on this list and not. And the struggles that we face as believers in this world, tough world, brutal world does not think like you do. And so we pray that we will have your spirit. We'll move through remembering what the apostles suffered, what your son suffered, and that uh, we will take that into account when we have to suffer our own flesh to take up a cross, to die daily, and to face uh, deaths constantly. That it's the death of our flesh and your will to abide so that Christ can be known. So be with us until we get together again. Help us to be better Christians to the people who we engage with and it will be by your spirit not our flesh help us to have that hope that you talk about um, that love you talk about and that faith and we pray for this in jesus name amen